Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Greetings, everyone, and it's my great pleasure to be introducing Rabina Corton to the Voce Dialogues. Rabina is a Buddhist nun since the 1970s. Big welcome to you, Rabina. Delighted to be here, Chloe. Thank you so much. For those of you that don't know you, I just want to introduce everybody to your remarkable life. Rabina has worked since the 1970s with the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition worldwide network of Tibetan Buddhist activities of her teachers, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche. She has served as an editorial director of Wisdom Publications, editor of Mandala Magazine, executive director of Liberation Prison Project, and as a touring teacher of Buddhism. Rabina was born in Melbourne, Australia, and educated by the Catholic nuns. She studied classical singing until the mid-1960s, when, ripe and ready for revolution, I like that, she became involved in the radical left in London and eventually feminism. Wanting something spiritual again, she met Tibetan lamas in 1976 in Australia and received ordination 18 months later in Kathmandu. Rubina's life, as well as her work with prisoners, has been featured in the documentary films Chasing Buddha and Key to Freedom and a CD of her singing, prayers, and mantras is called Devotion, and it's in collaboration with Yantra de Vilde and was produced in 2017. Well, Rubina, I am just really fascinated. I happened upon your amazing journey just listening to an interview where you just started unfolding your life. And I was just completely captivated by the combination of rebelliousness, activism, feminism, very deep inquiry from a very early age, and then this kind of desire to travel, and of course your connection with your mother through music and singing and so on. So it'd be yeah. lovely, you know, just to hear you just speak of your life a little bit if you would, and then I would just love to go on to hear your understanding of what is compassion and how has it shown up in your life. Perfect, Chloe. Good. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, I brought up as a Catholic, yes, as, as you said. I was the second of seven children, six daughters and a son. My mother's son was the youngest, my brother. 
and we're all very close in age. And uh, I think by the time I was very little, you know, very tiny, when I first went to mass, my mother was a Catholic, my father wasn't. I remember it was like recognition. I decided I was going to be a priest. So I announced to everybody that I wanted to do that. And of course, they all laughed because I'm not a boy, you know. So I think I must have been so young that intellectually that didn't make sense for me. It just seemed like obvious it was my job. So I think, yeah, rebellious indeed all, all my life. I mean, very volatile and absolutely rebellious, always in trouble at school, always in trouble. I mean, a bit of a bully to my poor old sisters. But somehow my internal world was completely private. I didn't ever talk about it, but I just assumed everybody thought the same thing. You, you do that when you're young. I mean, I was in love with God. I was on one hand, completely internal, thought about the meaning of life, the meaning of God. I loved the idea that God was everywhere and went to mass on my own, often on my bicycle, went to mass every morning. And then my mother sent me to boarding school. But the interesting thing was, even when I was 12 or 13, there I was on the one hand on my knees, begging my mother to let me be a Carmelite nun, like St. Teresa of Lisieux. And I was bitterly disappointed when she said no, but at the same time in trouble. So she sent me to boarding school. Uh, because I was naughty. So I, I, these two parts of myself seem to live well together. I don't know. I don't understand it. But um, then by the time I was 19, I think, you know, it was kind of really literally very clear decision. It was time for boys. And that meant goodbye God. I didn't have, a, I didn't have any anguish or guilt. So it's not my nature. So I think from, that, from the time I was 19, which was, yeah, mid-60s. Mm -hmm. And then my mother taught me music. She was a classical singer and pianist. And so my other sisters would go to the football on Saturdays and we'd, we'd have singing lessons. And I remember loving, loving the experience of singing. I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm a bass, I'm like a bass baritone now. I'm no longer a soprano because I'm older and I haven't practiced much. But I remember the, the experience of singing was something so special, just mentally and physically. It was a joyful experience for me. Then I went to London. My mother hoped I'd continue my singing career. And I went off to London in 67. But kind of getting out of the way of home, I think. And then I decided to question things. So when I began eight or 10 years of intense, it was inquiry, basically all the time, all my life was inquiry. I didn't want to go to university. I didn't, I had a sense of how to learn, but I was always looking for a way to see the world. So I began with radical left and in London and then black politics, then feminist, all the time with, with wish to try and understand what goes on, why is there suffering, what, what makes things tick. I didn't ever go the scientific way. It was always this, this political. So then I think by the time I was about 29, exhausted options with who to blame for the suffering in the world. And I wanted something spiritual again. So I went back to mass, tried this, did that, tried a bit of this meditation. And then, as you mentioned, you know, in a, when I was 31, I was bumped into these Tibetan lamas and they were my, turned out to be my teachers. I kind of fell into their lap on day one. So it became nine, 18 months later. That's it. So I think I was, the, the theme throughout my life, it might not have been evident to even me or others by looking, didn't seem clear, but internally the theme was looking for a way to see the world, looking for a way to understand things. And somehow, for whatever reason, I found that view of the universe and way of life. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. T tell us more about your, your first meeting with these guys, with these Tibetan monks. What was it, you think, that captivated you? Was it, was it, what, was it what they were describing? Was it the energy field of who they were? Was it the compassion that you were experiencing from them? What was it? Well, on the one hand, it was literally quite a culture shock, Chloe, because I was genuinely, I mean, I was seriously seriously immersed in alternative or radical left politics as well as mm -hmm. feminists. And I was seriously fully committed. So I'd been, I'd been a hippie first. And so when ten, eight, 10 years later, coming back to the situation where they're in this center in Queensland in Australia, 200 people, mainly hippies, it was like a culture shock. I'd like gone back 10 years. And it was, I mean, it was so shocking to me in a way. I wasn't happy at all from that perspective. I think the moment I arrived, this is the thing that you can't explain sometimes, it was like I recognized this is what I'd been looking for for 31 years. This is the very strongly what I felt. But still, on the other hand, I didn't understand what the Lamas were saying. It was very arcane in 14th century, but I knew there was something there. So I persevered. 
I was there for eight weeks, did a retreat, and it was very clear to me. It was quite intensive because I had to really assess my whole way of seeing the world, my political views. I didn't so much contradict things, but it was very powerful. But I think certainly what appealed was the, the attitude in Buddhism of you don't just blindly believe things. Buddha's not a creator. We should question, think it through ourselves. We're the boss of our lives. We don't, you know. And the other part was also compassion. It was very evident to me, seeing these two people over that eight-week period, to me, their wisdom and their compassion, that was really evident, was really obvious, you know. And that was in the appearance. So, and also both aspects. There was also the devotional side, which I hadn't fully developed yet that, in, in that way. But I was very moved by that. But also the philosophy went along with it. And I wanted both those parts. I wanted the internal and the philosophical, because I could see that, that was, that's what I've been missing in my life. So that was very powerful for me. So mm. 45 years later still going it's incredible it's almost if you're you're describing also how that satisfied your uh what you were looking for is this kind of connection between the masculine and feminine dimensions of spiritual practice almost if you like put it that way absolutely you know i I remember when i was a feminist that was the final stages of my political activity it was very serious because i'm i mean that was interesting i'm not working class i'm not poor i'm not black but i am female so that was the most intensive period of my political activity because it began to become very spiritual and personal but i remembered sort of looking into female spiritual practices but i felt that it was something missing i wanted i wanted something solid and strong so-called male if you like i wanted philosophical views i wanted clarity and understanding i just didn't want a nice feeling i didn't just want devotion i wanted both you know and that for me absolutely i have found so and in particular in the tibetan buddhist tradition because the tradition there it's it's, it's the, the monastic university system of intensive 20 30 years of study of the, all the metaphysics and the philosophy and the psychology that tracks itself right back to the the heyday in india of this great monastic university system called nalanda monastery back in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century. That's the part that I found so profound, so appealing, and still do. That utterly suits me. You know. And it sounds like the, also just the, the possibility to have a direct experience and to be directly in charge of that process, of that internal journey. Well, that's the, I mean, the, the point to me, even though I was a good Catholic and was in love with God, it was curious, as a, as a kid, I, I didn't have any feeling of God being my creator. But I, I, I love this, this sort of universal energy that pervades the universe that is all-knowing and all-perfect and all-compassionate. That's what the, the essence of what God is, but that's also the essence of what the Buddhists say every one of us can accomplish, and that's the very meaning of the word Buddha. So that the idea that Buddha's not a creator, we've got this continuity of consciousness, and as His Holiness of Dalai Lama says, I mean, the whole Buddhist idea of the law of karma, for example, it's like self-creation. The emphasis in Buddhism is we are the ones who create our own happiness and our own suffering. So we are the ones who create our own our own reality, basically. And I find that very appealing. I love that. I love what you're saying because very often, particularly when I, I was just telling you earlier about when I first came back from India, so the whole kind of just purely psychological, historical narrative way of healing was no longer relevant. It wasn't enough. You know, I mean, obviously, there's forgiveness of, uh, you know, of one's past and all of that and the skills of how one actually just simply lets go the biological narrative. But it became clear to me how sound itself can be an incredible sword, but also a flower in unifying the devotional with the observational witnessing consciousness and how the sound can actually do that, how the sound can be that for people. Well, it's, it's interesting also because, in, you know, Buddhism has got these different aspects that have been cultivated or, or, or have continued from India over the centuries. And mm-hmm. I think it's probably only in Tibet that esoteric teachings, the so-called Vajrayana, still among Tibetan Buddhists actually extant and fully developed, you know. And so there, when you, when you study, and 
the study the, um, and this is coming directly from those amazing Indians. I mean, I remember it was the Dalai Lama, you know, often in the West, we know nothing about India. We know nothing at all. We'd love, we'd love to go back to the Greeks, don't we? But I remember the Dalai Lama saying it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who are the ones who began the investigation into the nature of self. So not only at the general level of teachings in Buddhism, the amazing psychology, the amazing view of the, of the human mind, and these great yogis more than 3,000 years ago before the Buddha were the ones who actually mapped the mind. It's really astonishing. They're the ones who cultivated this extraordinary technique that the world knows vaguely as mindfulness, which is called concentration meditation. But also the esoteric are really marvelous. So there's that, the Vajrayana model of the universe and the way that a person is constructed and this is actually the basis of the Tibetan medical system. It is coming from the yogic system in, in India. We've got gross consciousness and gross body, the one we, we can see. But then we have subtle consciousness and subtle, subtle body. And this is made up of these 72,000 subtle channels through which course these different wind energies. And this is the, sub, this is the basis of health in the Chinese system, the Ayurvedic system, and certainly in the Tibetan medical, the understanding of these different wind energies is prana. And, and, and then what's curious, what's marvelous actually, is this, this wind energy is intimately connected to our different states of mind. So from this perspective, even just the thoughts we have, which is the crucial point in Buddhism, every thought counts, nothing goes astray. All the different thoughts we have at a subtle level connected to these different winds. And so, you, you know, just by having a loving thought that immediately purifies those wind energies and literally that can heal you quite literally. It's a, it's a physical thing. And equally, angry thoughts can then pollute the wind energy, which in turn eventually can cause sickness. And this even in turn is talking about future lives as well. So there's this very detailed description and very profound understanding of these wind energies. And actually in the Vajrayana, as they say, you know, at the subtler level, wind is sound. I mean, you know, isn't it? There's no, there's no air, there's, if there's a vacuum, there's no sound. And so mantra, Sanskrit sounds, which have come way back from the, to those Indians, that all the Buddhists would say, certainly among the Tibetan Buddhists, the Vajrayana model, They'd say that Sanskrit is the purest of sound. It's the it's the use of the winds in the in the body, and then we and 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 all these different sounds represent. You know, all the mantras, for example, they're all just verbal expressions of the different Buddhas, who are the expressions of love, compassion, kindness, wisdom. There are wrathful ones, there are peaceful ones. So it's a very integrated system, and all those Buddhas are just expressions of our potential. So by saying the mantra of compassion, the mantra of wisdom, the mantra of power, we can cultivate those very qualities at the same time as purifying our minds and healing our body. Wow, I love this. Because I'm, I'm just sort of hearing a kind of connection between the exploration of human emotion, how one can actually engage with human emotion by sounding it and then observing the sound that is being made rather than being completely consumed by it and lost in it that you're you're observing the sound that's being made and then in that observation you you can you can hear almost like the antidote of whatever the the emotion is that's coming through that wind breath so for example if somebody says to me i feel really afraid right. and i say okay so what does that sound like they will sing um, sounds that are very, 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 very close together, you know, mm. that are almost not separate from each other because it, mm. they're so kind of, you know, and there's a kind of frenzy in the, the voice and in the sound, but something happens in the listening, the skillful witnessing and listening to that sound mm. that you start to hear the energy of it and then you start to hear the deeper source from which that sound actually arises. Slowly, 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 slowly. And then the compassion uh, or sometimes through the devotion into compassion comes an awareness that 
This is just the weather of the mind passing through, you know, like clouds across the sky. Interesting. Uh, and that's really interesting to me that, you know, for people that are connected more with a sort of psychotherapeutic, let's blame the parents routine, you know, <laughs> it's like to suddenly go, well, actually that anger is mine. And that yes, anger exactly. lives in me. Exactly. And that, you know, that anger or that fear or that, you know, it actually has a courage. It has, there's actually courage in there that, that's riding in behind it. You know, it's an energy that yeah. wants to actually transform itself. How it does that, it just has its own way of doing that. One of my teachers always say, you know, being a Buddhist is like being your own therapist, but it's quite literally true because yeah. the emphasis in Buddhism is a detailed description of the states of different states of mind. There's no analysis of what someone did to you, what the external events that triggered it. There are external events that do trigger things, but the entire emphasis in Buddhism is becoming intimately familiar with your own mind. And this is the other point, as I'm mentioning, from the Vajrayana point of view, the esoteric one, the relationship of the mind to these subtle winds and therefore sound yeah. is... In the Buddhist view, every second of what you think counts. I mean, we have a view in the West that, that your thoughts don't matter because no one hears them. We can, we're allowed to think what we like, we realize, we think. We have no idea what it's doing to us. The Buddhist approach is every tiny thought counts, and we are the ones who have to be in charge of it because we literally produce the person we become. I mean, I can see this, certainly saying working with people, who um, one, of the, one of the jobs I have is to edit books, and one of the books I've finished recently is the book of Lama Zopas about how to help at the time of death. And of course, this is huge for Buddhism because they talk about reincarnation. But wow. the use of sound is incredible. I mean, they talk about in Buddhism, is, they say we, we need to develop the power of speech. I mean, speech really means sound, you know, and just yeah. the sound of voices. I mean, you can hear it if you listen to someone like the Dalai Lama. Oh, you don't yeah. need to hold the man as a special person. You don't need to know that because the sound of his voice and you can't separate that from the person's mind. You can't pretend to have a, a pure sound and, and a very powerful virtuous words if your mind's crazy. So everything that goes on in the mind produces the person we become and the sound we make can be incredibly beneficial for others. So I can see working with people who have been, people who are in comas, sound is immediately powerful. I remember one experience and there's so many like this, an old woman I knew years ago in, who was, who'd gone into a coma and they didn't think she'd come out of it. And I went to the ICU every evening yeah. And every now and again, I'd sing prayers to her, but also I'd say words. She was close to certain lamas, and I'd just say to her, Judy, Songsa Kensei Rimache is praying for you, and another lama as well. And she came out of that coma, and that was the only sound she remembered. She remembered those words. So words, even if they're articulate, they can still have so much power. And or I'm going to old people's home, one crazy old lady out of a brain with misery, you know, really tormented. I, didn't, I thought, what to have to do to help her? I simply sang the compassion mantra instantaneously she was peaceful so sound is is evident that even at the grossest level it's powerful oh that's so absolute music to my ears it, it, you know because this can be so accessible for people so simple precisely, precisely that's right that's the absolute miraculum of it isn't it that it is exactly. so accessible and so exactly. immediate. And you don't need to understand it because all these mantras people say well how can i say sanskrit i don't understand I said, you don't need to know, know the, the meaning of the syllables. And anyway, they sound mundane if you translate them literally, but there's a much more powerful, just the use of it. And people feel this. If they don't know what meditation to do, I'd say sing the mantra, say, sing them the compassion mantra, sing the mantra of wisdom, sing Tara's mantra, and people can see it. Immediate, immediate benefits, immediate benefits. It's extraordinary. I tell you, I was in Rosenheim not long ago with my daughter, who's a jazz pianist. She's an incredible pianist. She's taught me more about the sacred geometry of music than anyone I know. I I'm yeah. a jazz fan completely also. I loved it when I heard you in one of your interviews talking about how when you were going to, quote, retire, which is yeah. a joke, I'm sure, to you, the idea of retiring. <laughs> but, but I'm sure that's a complete joke. 
that you wanted to, to, to be in, in New York City and going to jazz clubs and writing. It sounds great. Well, I thought the fantasy is a little studio apartment up in the sky because somehow the certain aspects of the New York sky are marvellous. And then throughout the day do my editing and then go down to the jazz clubs at night. That was my fantasy. Yeah. You never know. It might still happen. It could. It could. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So here's something I want to ask you about, which I've never asked anybody. I did actually speak to Chick yeah. about it. And it, that yes. was very synchronous because yeah. I was doing this solo self-retreat quite a few years ago. And it was about five days in. And in the early hours of the morning, I had this dream. And in the dream, there was a big red Buddha sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. And he was just sort of pointing his finger at me and saying, know the heart sutra. And, and at that time, I had no idea what a sutra was, let alone a heart su- the heart sutra. Wow. And it was just mind-blowing. I mean, it completely changed my life. It's become a central mantra That's in my a- life. How would you interpret what that was? Well, I mean, okay, given the Buddha's view, you know, that your consciousness goes back and back and back, that's why we don't need creating. Buddha says we don't need creating. We've always existed. I know it's a weird idea for the Western view, but right. this is the view. The consciousness is subtle. It's not physical. It's, got a, it's a continuity of mental moments. It goes from life to life to life. Everything we think and do and say leaves two things, leaves certain seeds in the mind, like qualitative, and they're the ones that produce our future experiences. But at a more fundamental level, the Buddhist view is nothing goes astray. Everything we've ever seen, touched, tasted, heard about, thought about, experienced through any of our senses, everything gets stored in our mind like memories. Mm-hmm. Our mind is full of literally billions of memories. And so what comes up in our dreams, because the dream mind is the sort, is called the subtle consciousness. We usually can't access that while we're busy with our sensory consciousness during the day. So right. our subtle mind at night that's where these memories, so certain things can happen in a day that would right. trigger something in your past history, 27 lives ago, whoever, and there's this image coming up, this red Buddha, know the heart sutra. So it's clearly showing logically from the Buddhist perspective, it's not cosmic, that you've got some past connection with the, with the Buddhist teachings and something happened in the previous day that triggered that memory. And so it manifests in your dream. So, you know, pay attention. Perfect. Right. What goes on in our mind and our dreams is as valid as any other. We just have to know what it means. That's all. Everything is memory stored in our mind. Nothing goes astray. Right. So what part does that play within your tradition, that particular well, I mean, because in the Vajrayana, which is the more esoteric teachings, where they talk about gross consciousness, subtle consciousness, and we even have a subtle level of consciousness. And this is why the death process is so well taught and deeply understood, especially in the Vajrayana among the greatest yogis. And it's one of the major practices we learn to do to become familiar because the natural process of this deconstruction of the person that occurs at death is exactly the same as the, as the process that occurs every time we go to sleep, but we're unconscious. So we need to learn the great yogis, as Lama Zopa says in his book, this is, death is what they've been waiting for, is because that's when you go through this process of deconstruction from the gross to the subtle to the very subtle. And because they practice throughout their lives in their meditation training, their minds to go to the more subtle level consciously. And the simple reason you want to get to the subtlest level is because that's the level of mind that can unpack and unravel and get rid of all the nonsense and all the delusions and all the misconceptions and literally achieve our own natural potential for Buddhahood, for perfection, for goodness, for, uh, for wisdom and compassion. It was quite technical, you know? So it's a powerful thing. So it has a great meaning, understanding our subtle mind. I mean, the great yogis can use their dream mind, you know, when you can do it consciously, because it's, it's more subtle and potentially more powerful for cognition to cut through all the nonsense and realize reality. Right, right. So obviously the chanting of the mantra is, is a constant reaffirmation of that understanding would it be yeah but also it's simply if everything that you think and do and say leaves imprints in the mind if you're sitting there even thinking 
even silently saying it to yourself, imagining it, or literally out loud saying the mantra, you're putting imprints in your mind of that particular energy, compassion, wisdom, or whatever it might be. So it's a very practical thing. It's, it's programming your mind in that quality. So saying the compassion mantra or Mani Padme Hong, singing it, you know, programs your mind in compassion. Saying the wisdom mantra, saying the mantra of Tara, this female Buddha, she represents power and success and confident energy. Saying her mantra programs us in that energy. Quite literally, it's not even cosmic, it's quite practical. I had an experience of that, just starting to tell that story, and then we went off into the Heart Sutra, but she and I went out to Rosenheim. I was invited out there to sing. That's in Bavaria. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, everybody's still wearing lederhosen, and it's an amazing world. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so there we were, and they said, oh, this is going to be a little surprising for you, but very much welcome you. And they wanted me to sing a particularly Tara mantra that I've sung for many years. Uh And my daughter was was playing jazz with this. Oh wow, wonderful! And so that was really cool. And she oh. she and I are now working together in this, to really trying to find the place where. And that's another thing I want to talk to you about in a minute is your understanding of that and your appreciation of that. But there we were, and then they opened the doors on this what turns out to be almost like a virtual arena with about mm-hmm. two thousand people in there. They're all singing the Tara mantra. Oh my God! I, I couldn't believe it. And my daughter's looking at me and going. Mom, how did you get this job? <laughs> well, exactly. That's incredible, isn't it? But it's a kind of affirmation of what you're saying because yes. they had these videos, like it's all really high tech, you know, yes. going around of, of all the different um, manifestations of Tara. And then we and they were singing Om Tara Du Tara Du And then there we were. And it turns out that it was a whole conference on light. They were just um, sharing sort of contemporary language on, on yes. light. Uh, it was it was quite quite special yes so for yourself for yourself personally how much a part has has mantra played in your evolution of your understanding of compassion yeah okay exactly compassion in particular so there's this there's this wonderful analogy which i quote all the time in buddhism which really it's a way of framing the entire path to buddhahood to perfection to, to enlightenment from a to z you know and that's the two a, a bird needs two wings wisdom and compassion so all the, the wisdom side is all the nuts and bolts of understanding the Buddha's view of the mind, deconstructing it, becoming your own therapist, abiding by the laws of karma, really becoming intimately familiar with yourself in order to develop your own amazing qualities and, and, and literally develop the person you want to become. So that on the other hand, this qualifies you. One, gives, it brings you your own results of your own happiness and fulfillment, but naturally what it does is qualify you to then have compassion for others, to have empathy for others. Because when you're caught up in your, mis- your own misery and self-centeredness and depression and anxiety, you can't see past your own nose. It's really evident, you know, you can't do anything. So obviously you put yourself together first, then as you progress in lessening your own neuroses and growing your own kind of wisdom and clarity and contentment, this inevitably connects you to others and you start to realize, my God, we're all in the same boat. And that's the essence of the compassion wing, the Bodhisattva path, of course, in Buddhism, is that as you progress yourself and get rid of your own nonsense and become more and more marvelous, you become more and more powerful in your enthusiasm to never want to give up, to be a benefit to others because you have such connectedness because you really realize we're all in the same boat. We're all thinking that someone else is the cause of our suffering. We're all tormented by our own depression and anxiety. We all believe it's the core of our being. We all don't know how to change it. We blame the outside world. I mean, this is just the, the story of life and life is intense. We can see this. So it's that's the essence of it. And mantra inevitably is part of all that. It's just part of your practice. It's part of one's practice, you know. Right. And is that something more internally felt for you now or would it be more... Uh, or externally, which is, does it matter? What do you mean? Sorry. 
So the actual uh, recitation of a mantra or the absorption of the the power of the mantra to dissolve. Oh, yeah. No, all of the mantras. We have, I mean, one's practice every day. We have, you have these different practices of the different Buddhas. There are many, many, many different manifestations of these different psychological qualities labeled a Buddha. You have, you know, some wrathful ones, for example, one called Yamantaka, who's very wrathful, and that's a manifestation of purified anger. So he's got a mantra. You have another mantra of developing wisdom for, for the sharpness of your speech and to help you use your speech so it can be a benefit to others. And we have these countless numbers of mantras, and you recite them. Sometimes you do, as you know, you do an entire retreat where you do 100,000 of these mantras. So they are not, they're an integral part of our practice as Tibetan Buddhists, absolutely, no question. So another practice that I could actually give my practitioners, you know, when I've done this work with them, with the with the homeopathic uh, relationship with sound yeah. and anger yeah. becoming, you're realizing that anger is actually just unrealized creative passion. That's uh, right. And then that could then be translated into a Buddhistic mantra, which would then really distill, disappear the old... Well, it helps you purify that part of yourself. But of course, in the Vajrayana, the... It's, it's, I mean, it sounds lovely, but it's but actually quite sophisticated level of practice is sure. that you can, there's, there's nothing you can't use. The Vajrayana model, I mean, at the very first level of practice, we start because we're driven by our crazy delusions and anxiety and anger. There's nothing, right. nothing to use there. You have to learn to harness them. So the very first level of practice, I like to call it junior school, and this is the first part of the wisdom wing, you learn to control the servants of your crazy, of your crazy mind, which is your body and speech. You learn to control your body and speech live good ethics is very powerful then you're qualified to go to the next level of the wisdom wing now you start to look into the mind itself and unpack and unravel that and really become familiar with yourself and lessen again lessen the neuroses and grow the goodness and that's the practice of the wisdom wing, which brings your contentment your fulfillment your own joy quite literally and then you keep progressing at this level you know the very first level you don't even go anywhere near too many boys and too many chocolate cakes. At the next level, you've got more, you've harnessed your attachment energy. You can start to have the chocolate cake without going crazy, if you like. At the next level of compassion wing, your compassion and empathy, and this is really talking highly, highly evolved beings, their compassion and empathy is so profound that, you know, the chocolate cake is nothing to them. And then at the, the, the highest level, the Vajrayana, then you're able to literally, because you're such a great yogi, you're able to literally utilize. There's nothing you can't utilize. There's no, None of the negative or all the negative so-called positive qualities can be utilized by the greatest yogis and transformed. That's the most advanced level. Everything can be used, you know. So that's why at that, at that level, I mean, anger is anger. And look at the harm that it does. Once you've harnessed it yourself and you understand it, you know, it's like you can use tough love. A good mother can use tough love. She can shout strongly to her child, but she's completely coming from compassion. We know that's possible. So there's different stages of your own practice. You have to know where you're at and not, and not uh, kind of fool yourself, you know. I always, finally nothing we can't do transform. The potential that we have as human That's beings is extraordinary. With respect to everybody, everyone, I mean, I'm just not trying to be too much of a prejudice towards the Buddha, but I mean, he's a pretty, I, know, I find that just Buddha doesn't own any of this stuff. He's not a creator, but he's just really good at it. He's, 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 this is the Buddhist expertise, this extraordinary understanding of the human mind and a way of tran channeling it and using it and transforming it. I have to say that, I mean, it seems to me my own observation. Buddhist psychology is pretty marvelous. And it's only really now, with his holiness in the West, that Westerners, the scientists, as well as the psychologists, are starting to see the extraordinary system that came out of India more than 3,000 years ago. You know, it's really it's rather humbling for us because we're sort of rather arrogant in our culture. We think we're the only ones who know anything, right? So I think right. many scientists and thinkers in the West now have been deeply moved by having contact with the Dalai Lama. He's been so extraordinary in opening people's minds, you know, in, in, in his own way, by showing sincere interest in the Western scientific views, not just sitting on his high throne saying, come on, I'll tell you some secret things. He's really fantastic in that way. And it's opened up so many people's minds. You know?
And of course, his use of humour is extraordinary, isn't it? I know, he's wonderful, isn't he? He's hilarious. Wonderful. <laughs> Once he came over to Northern Ireland and I was asked to go and sing um, in the pouring rain uh, in a car park. Uh, and yes. the, We had this kind of makeshift stage behind us and we yes. were on the ground floor. He was going to be on the stage with yes. the two leaders of the Protestant and Catholic churches. Right. And the whole thing was about, you know, let's make peace. And so I'd been asked uh, to sing, and we had to be in the pouring rain in this car park because neutral oh ground oh my God. between the Protestants and the Catholics. His Holiness was coming down this long, what was called a peace walk, and he was yes. taking a long time because he's obviously, as you say, extraordinarily generous. Apparently, yes. there was an amazing moment where he walked past a grocery store, and this woman who didn't know what was going on, she, yes. was, she was running the store, and she was going, "Who is this noble man for the East?" <laughs> Asking quite sort of, you know, quite naively, who is yes. he? And then at that moment, he walks past. Yes. And I mean, it's, it's just so moving. Basically, yes. she saw him, he saw her, and yes. they just fell on each other's shoulders. <laughs> and she was just like in floods of tears. She couldn't believe it was like meeting the oldest friend in the universe, which That's he is. That's amazing, isn't it? That's wonderful. Amazing. And yes. then what happens is he carries on coming down, and I'm singing the Tara mantra because... Obviously, Tara is the sacred hill of Ireland. That's right, exactly. As well as being the, the, the compassionate goddess. So we're singing and it's pouring in rain and <laughs> and, and the people are telling me, they say, when they open the peace gates between, you know, the one faction and the other faction, yeah. children yeah. may start throwing stones at each other and then they might start throwing stones at you. But, you know, and the paramilitary are there. So it's all very, pretty heavy at one level. Oh God, but, there, you know, but there we are singing the Tara Mantra and that's the one thing, that's the one moment I realised just how profound that Tara Mantra is. Yeah. We had to keep singing it because he was going slowly, slowly and more slowly. Finally, he came through the peace gates, and by that point, I mean, as you probably know, you, your eyes close when you, you chant for long enough. Yes. And so then I opened my eyes, and these children were just like singing in my face because they recognised Tara, like victims of the war, and you know, it's like, and the, yes. and the paramilitary, they dropped their guns. It's like they didn't know what was going on. They were quite slightly disoriented, and then, right. <laughs> then it started. It was one of those moments, like you have with, the, with His Holiness, where the sun comes right. out he comes in came up onto the steps with the and onto the platform with the two religious leaders and they both had beards and he had the presence of mind to take their beards and bang them against his head so they were they were both on either left and right of him right and they banged the, their heads against his head and he was just laughing yes like, like that incredible laugh like fire yes. coming out of his mouth yes. and, and everybody's like what is happening and then and then this is so this is going on the two priests are like christ literally what just happened yes. <laughs> Dalai Lama's laughing then he looks at the audience and he says i can understand he said when you have two leaders from different opposing religions arguing with each other but when they're the same religion why is that still happening now and he's just like roaring with laughter and nice. it just brings the entire you know 5000 people are just roaring with laughter, you know. It's yes. just really affirming what you're saying, which is yes. this. I just love this notion of the wind breath. You see, for me, I've been very connected with the Sufi world. I uh, see. And and so I'd love to just ask you if you would just share a bit yes. about the absence of soul that, or the, the, the lack of need for soul, for example, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I mean, speaking simply, you know, if we think of, uh, like the Christians would say, there's this third entity called the soul. We have a body, a mind, and a soul. The, yeah. the Hindus talk about anatman, a self. 
The Greeks yeah. are all about an essence. And it's a very, even when we think intuitively ourselves, we think like that. We think I've got a body, I've got a mind, and somehow there's this third component that's like the owner, you know. I mean, in the Buddhist philosophical teachings, this is the, the culmination, this view of Buddhas about what the essence in us, what it is, is, yes. is the culmination of all of Buddha's teachings. And so, of course, it can be easily misunderstood when he talks about no self or no soul. It just sounds like he's being a communist. But it's way more nuanced than that. Speaking very simply, he's not saying there's no subtle essence of us. Buddha uses the word consciousness or mind synonymously. And right. so all your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your unconscious, your subconscious, your instinct, your intuition, even what you might call, even what Buddhists would say is the subtlest level of your conscious being, which is what occurs before you leave the body and take another birth. That's called your very subtle consciousness. It's, it does exist. It's, and it's a continuity. It goes on for eternity as far as Buddha is concerned. So there is consciousness, but we have these different levels of it. He doesn't make a distinction between the consciousness and then another piece called the soul. So it's really more of understanding that. It's, it's not as if he's just saying there's not something there. Buddha is saying it's, it's a subtle level of our own continuity of consciousness. And the main discussion is the philosophical understanding, which has to become experiential in meditation, about the nature, about its very ontological status. So it's really quite a subtle argument. It's not a simplistic idea. There's not something there. Not like that at all. I really totally get that. So, for example, I, I've sung with the Rumi poet, Coleman Barks. There was a kind of recognition at this conference, and I'm just so fascinated to consider with you. I'm just trying to think of a Rumi poem. I mean, there's very simple ones, which could almost be Buddhistic, like there is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. So that's that's acceptable, I would imagine, within a Buddhist... The way I put it is this, you know, even when I... There's some wonderful cantatas, Bach cantatas, and oh, one yeah. of them had enough. It's all about God, you know, devotion. Yeah. And it completely fits with the Buddhist view of devotion. I mean, oh. the devotion in Buddhism, in the Vajrayana, in the more esoteric, is devotion towards the the human manifestation of, for you of the Buddha, who is your guru. One, this is a term that's actually, I think it's, I've heard that it means in Sanskrit, heavy with knowledge, heavy with qualities, with qualities. So the uh, emphasis of the Vajrayana, we need a person in human form who is the manifestation of all the qualities we are trying to accomplish. This is really logical. If I want to study singing, I can look in a book, I can read, listen to a record. I need to go to a human being like you, check you out, see if you're a valid person, and then I'll commit to seeing you. You're the manifestation of, of my potential music. You know, So you need to have this really marvelous relationship with a mentor, with a teacher. And that's the representation for you in human form of the Buddha himself. It's a bit similar to the concept of Jesus being God in the human form, you understand. And right. that's where the devotion is. We have this enormous devotion for Buddha in that form, for the guru, for the, for the one who's manifesting those qualities. So the devotion aspect is huge in the Vajrayana. It's massive. And it's exactly the same when I was a Catholic. It's almost like a technical difference. One view is that that's the creator, but the Buddha doesn't have that view. And often because we're so familiar with the Christian and the Muslim teachings, religion equals creator and devotion equals creator. So one of the commonest things people say to a Buddhist is, well, who do you pray to? Just because you didn't create me doesn't mean I can't have devotion for you. And that's the experience right. of Buddhism. That's the, that's the relationship in Buddhism. So devotion is massive. And that, of course, because we've all got human hearts, so then that's where sound and mantra and music can trigger that part it's beyond the verbal. And that's, again, a major role. You can see that in the Vajrayana. There's no question. That's so interesting. Because I'm thinking of things like, say, for example, that poem that goes, what was in that candle's light that burned and consumed me so quickly? Come back, my love. The form of our love is not a created form. There was a dawn, I remember, when my soul heard something from your soul. I drank water from your spring 
and felt the current take me. So I, I can hear that. Oh, totally fitting. I can hear this exactly. They talk about the relationship with, with in, you know, in your meditation, your daily life, your, your, your relationship with this human manifestation for you, for guru. I don't want to use that word easy because people have a weird understanding of it. You yeah. know, it's, we have a human heart. So the connection between you and a human person in front of you, showing you exactly what it's like to be that. We need that badly. We all have a human heart. We're all dying for love, as Lama Yeshi said. So it's a powerful way. Devotion is a powerful method to open the heart. And when your heart is open, there's a connectedness. And then that's where you can cut through ego. It's a very powerful function and very necessary one. I listen to those words of Bach and they're completely Christian, but I can put them in exactly into my own meaning. There's no contradiction whatsoever. I heard that poem you just said then, it's exactly the same. They talk about becoming oneness with the Buddha in your own meditation. You become oneness with your guru, oneness with the Buddha, you know, it's exactly yeah. the same. They talk about water, water completely merging with water, becoming oneness, all the same type of imagery. So the soul is like the higher self or something, I suppose in the Hindu world, that's like I said, they just use the word consciousness. So consciousness, yes. that's why as you go through the death process, the greatest yogis can, can go from the grosser to the subtle to the most subtle, staying conscious because they've practiced all their lives with single-pointed concentration. This right. amazing these Indians invented 3,000 years ago. So yeah. as you go through that process with, that, with, with consciousness at an ever more subtle level, ever more subtle level, and you can literally get to what they call the clear light mind, which is the very subtle level. And you, if you want to be very loosely talking, that's like your, your soul, but it's, they don't use that word. That is the most potent, most profound level of your consciousness. And you can access that. That's when you can get enlightened. I love that. I love that. I totally get that. I totally get that. It's both and, isn't it? It's not either or. Yes. The major difference is when you study philosophy, it's the, the actual ontological status of that energy. That's where the differences are. That's where Buddha diverged from the Hindus in his understanding of the nature of that, of that self, the nature of the subtle clear light, the nature of the subtle mind, the nature of our subtle self. Also, you can say that to me. That really, really speaks to me very deeply. Sure. Uh, I would love you just to speak to your devotional CD if you would like to. Well, I can talk about the CD. Of course, it came out a couple of years ago. It's called Devotion. I think you just you can see it, devotioncd.com. I sort of wrote together this little 30 minutes of, of taking different prayers and put them together. And what was interesting, the, the approach we took, Yantra, you know, recorded in my voice multiple times. And, we, and, then, we, and then she wrote, then we did parts. It was very spontaneously by me singing with my earphones on. Then we did a series of parts. And that's not at all common to Tibetans. They don't sing in parts at all so that it's basically it's a choir of rabinas it's like multitude, multitudes of my voice well i would love to i've heard some of it and i would love to yeah. really promote that well i'll just i'll just finish with this little prayer which again is an aspiration that that we never give up this amazing attitude of um wanting to help others wanting to be a benefit to others beautiful thank you Jang chod sem chogrin poche makie panam ke gyochig ye panyam pa me pa yang gong ne gong du pelva show. Rabina, thank you so much. All right, sweetheart. I'm so happy to talk to you, Chloe. It was wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful dialogue with you. And we'll bump into each other somewhere when we get to London again. Or we get to Bath. Who knows? I'll see you somewhere, Chloe. Let's definitely meet. I think this is not the end, that's for sure. I don't think so. I don't think so, sweetheart. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much.